Thanksgiving weekend, an essay started circulating, and it was an essay that I felt like I'd been waiting a long time to read. The essay explores a troubling trend, a renewed skepticism of interracial relationships and indeed of interracial families. Its author is a white man married to a black woman. And while progressives had applauded their wedding back in 2007, he writes that it now felt as if he no longer had the right to parent his own children. Paul Kicks is an American journalist and the author of You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. His latest essay, For the Free Press, is Liberals Once Embraced Interracial Marriages Like Mine, What Changed? Paul Kicks is my guest, today on Lean Out. Paul, welcome to Lean Out. I'm so glad to be here. It's so great to have you on. Uh, Your recent essay at the Free Press about interracial marriage is an essay I feel like I've been waiting a long time to read. I live in Toronto. It's a hugely multicultural city. Most of my friends are in interracial marriages. There are interracial couples in my family, my extended family. I feel like things had just gotten to the point where this was unremarkable. And then things changed. (laughs) Yeah, things did. Yeah, I used to say, I used to say back in the day that like, I am the original woke because I'm like, Sonny and I got together in like 2004. And then even before I understood the full connotation, people were like, I'm not so sure that you want to say woke anymore. And it's like, really? And then I looked more into it and yeah, I kind of don't want to say woke anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so your your piece, I mean, I, I do think it's really telling that this woke ethos on race, where it falls apart the most is in families where we are at our most human. So I want to start today with your own family story, which you tell in this essay. You are a white guy from an Iowa farm. Your wife is black and from inner city Houston. Take us back to the moment that you two met. Sure. So um, I was 23 years old and I was going, I was working at the time for an alt weekly in Dallas, the Dallas Observer. And a couple of colleagues were like, we're going to go to this meet and greet. And so we go up there, it's this wine bar. And I'm telling you, like, I part the, there's literally curtains, right? And I part these curtains and like, she's the first person I see. I'm like, whoa, she is beautiful. And so immediately what I do is I go to the bar and I order two different whiskeys because I'm like, I got to get as much courage as I can (laughs) to go talk to her. And I'm not joking. Like as I was about to walk back, she sees me double fisting and she's like, hi. And I'm like, "Uh, hi. (laughs) And uh, Sonia and I started talking that night. And in a real sense, we haven't really quit since. Um, I like to say that I wooed her. At the time, I drove a 1988 Cadillac, and it was the last year that Cadillac had that full line caddy. It was called the Brome d'Elegance. It was like 20 feet of awesomeness. And I took her outside that night as the bar was closing, and she's like, you don't really drive a Cadillac. And I'm like, I do. And there it was. And she's like, oh, my God, I love that car. But in, but in a very real sense, like we bonded a short time thereafter just on our similarities, right? Like, like the, the piece says, like, there's so many, there's so many surface level differences between us, but really within a matter of hours, we were clicking along like, oh my God, you love Tupac too. Oh my God. Like you love JD Salinger's novels too. And it just sort of, like I said, we never quit talking after that. 
I, I loved reading that. I, I love hip hop as well. And this used to be just a normal feature of human interaction, this idea that was just assumed that we would have some differences and commonalities, and especially in the working class, which both you and your wife come from, there was this sense that we had more in common than not. When specifically do you think that changed? I think around the election of Trump, although some people would argue it changed before that, I found, in fact, we both found with the election of Trump, this sort of sorting in America, right? And I just couldn't fathom how America could elect somebody who talked about shithole countries and, you know, disparaged women and the the stuff he said about people from Mexico, right? And it's just on and on and on. And I had, I grew up in a very rural, so read conservative place, but it was also a very warm hearted place. And to see my county and then my my state turn for Trump, I'm just like, I don't even know what that is, what that represents. There are a lot of friends, you know, just from high school friends that we just don't talk about politics anymore in a way that we used to, right? Like we used to kid each other because I was like one of the lone liberals. Uh, we used to kid each other about that. But it's just it's, politics is just something ap- after Trump that we stayed away from. So that then influences, I think younger generation of liberals. And frankly, I don't, to a certain extent, don't even fault them because it's like you're responding to something that is against, should be against, to my mind, like sort of everybody's values should be like somebody who's just a sort of, I'm not even talking politically. I mean, again, like I, I love Texas, right? Like you go, you go to live down there, you find not only conservatives, but libertarians. I have no problem with conservatives. I have no problems with libertarians. I have a problem with assholes and Trump is an asshole. And the fact that a whole party could get could align around that, I'm like, that party's values now is completely misplaced. And then on the left, it's like, well, now let's do instead of the thing that that I couldn't fathom. And I'm wondering if you found the same thing in your own line of work is instead of like doubling down on the sort of John Stuart Mill classic liberalism, open thought, open debate, all of that, it liberalism, and I would even argue progressivism, if you want to counter the strain there, became just as closed-minded, just as intolerant of any idea that was not its own, right? And I, that's after Trump, it was mere, it was mimicking in some ways what, what the alt-right slash far-right was doing. It, it is really interesting that the illiberalism on the left, I mean, for those of us that come from the left, I also come from the left. I just, the values being expressed on the far left right now are just values I don't I don't understand, I don't comprehend, I can't see myself or my thinking in. It's just so alien to me and so illiberal. And I think there's a, there's a point in your essay that sort of captures this. You're a former editor at ESPN, and yeah. in 2018, you were hosting a happy hour for, for writers and editors. Tell us about that moment and and what you took away from it. So I'll even say some of the stuff that didn't make the essay because it it went a little bit beyond that. So basically, the 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 gist of the story is I'm a huge fan of Zadie Smith. Loved White Teeth when it was first published. Zadie and I are roughly the same age. Of course, there again, her differences are vastly different than mine. I think her mom is Jamaican, her dad is English, and I think she's raised in London. But in any case, I sort of found a sort of I found a solidarity with her by way of the ideas she's expressed in her essays and her writing is just so beautiful. So she writes this essay for Harper's in, I think we discussed it in 2018, but I think the essay itself comes out in 2017. It's called Who Owns Black Pain? And it's a look at the Whitney Biennial 
in uh, New York and an exhibit that they had there called Open Casket that was trying to, well, it was it was done by a Jewish artist named Dana Schutz, and she was depicting the murder in a somewhat abstract way of Emmett Till. And for the whole of my life, I, you know, just sort of was like, okay, whatever, right? Like that's just an artist depicting whatever he or she wants to depict. The Whitney Biennial, among the younger generation of progressives, and I don't want to necessarily turn it into a young versus old thing, but the reality is it this was something that surfaced first among younger progressives who were like, you are platforming somebody whose basically experience is not Emmett Till's, which is true. Dana Schutz's experience is not Emmett Till's. Zadie's point in the essay was you can not you you can choose to not like a piece of artwork and for the record zadie did not like dana schutz's piece on the merits of the painting itself right and you can write a screed against it and you can criticize it and you can even do your own piece of work in response but what the whitney biennial or rather the people who were who were complaining about that piece what they were arguing with the gallery about was Shoots shouldn't even be allowed to display it. And in fact, the, the Whitney Biennial was in the wrong for choosing to, again, platform shoots. And I was just like, that is ridiculous. I don't know if you remember this in Canada. In the 80s and 90s here in the States, I think I'm going to try to get his name right. Andre Serranos, Serranos. He was an artist who had this painting called Piss Christ. And it was a depiction of Jesus. I think I've literally drawn with either his own feces or his own urine. Here again, as a piece of artwork, if you look at Piss Christ, it just seems to try to be there for shock value. I'm not sure artistically how great it is. But when I was in college, I remember distinctly being like, because there were the conservative Christians, the Pat Buchanans of the world. Um, Pat Robertson's of the world who fought for almost a generation to ban something like Pitts Christ from any gallery in New York or more broadly, any gallery in Europe. And liberals like me scoffed at that, arguing the same thing that Zadie does in the essay. Write a critique against it, create your own piece of artwork, but don't ban it because then you're, you're then it's censorship, right? And to see how this new generation of progressives had adopted that same viewpoint that the people I used to scoff at adopted, I was just appalled. And so to bring it back to that room, I'm thinking as the Gen X elder, because like everybody in that room that night was like 30 or younger and like ESPN, the magazine at that time the thing, I just a quick shout out to what was once a great publication and is now shuttered. It chose to write and publish stories that were only tangentially related to sports. So we tried to hire people that really only had a passing interest in sports. What did they really care about? Story, right? They wanted, they needed to understand story, American history, the American experience, more broadly, like the world history, world experience. We had some super smart people on that staff. May it rest in peace. And that night, I am the elder, everybody under 30, again, many of them educated at elite universities, overwhelmingly diverse crowd, every single one of them thought that my viewpoint was abhorrent, that Dana Schutz's work should be banned, that in fact, Dana Schutz should never have her work featured anywhere else 
moving forward if she was going to choose to depict a person in an experience who is not directly her own. And so what I said that night, which is not actually in the essay, but perhaps is worth sharing here, is I, I started to talk about Nat, Nat Turner's revolt, right? And William Styron's book, which I think in 1970, so William Styron, literal son of the South from Virginia, I think he can probably trace his own, uh, I don't want to speak out of turn. I know that he has a many generation family in Virginia, or he did, right? I don't know if it traces all the way back to the Confederacy. But he decided he was fascinated with Nat Turner and Nat Turner's revolt. So he wrote a book about it in the voice of Nat. And at the time, and I said this that night in that bar to everybody else, I'm like, does anybody want to take a guess as to who Nat Turner's biggest proponent was? Do you know the answer to this story, by the way? I do not. James Baldwin. James Baldwin said, Bill, you need to publish this book. Both of these guys, classically liberal, interested in free expression, free debate, open society. And then a generation and a half later, people who were probably just as liberal as somebody like James Baldwin and believed in as many civic and cultural institutions and wanted to improve them in the same way that James Baldwin did, these same people were like, no ban it. There's no way that there's no, and by the way, there is no way that a white dude today could author a book in the voice of a slave. And I'm, by the way, like I've actually read Nat Turner's revolt. I'm not so sure that he actually does a great job of capturing it. So I'm not even arguing like on the artistic merits. I'm just saying that that should be an option that's available to people. But instead, what I heard overwhelmingly that night was that's a ludicrous idea too. And James Baldwin is wrong. And that's when I got scared because basically uh, scared is a bit of a loaded term. That's when I grew concerned because what you were really doing was you were saying, we cannot empathize with anybody else. We cannot imagine the life of anybody else. We should only going forward, imagine anybody's life who's similar to ourselves. And in particular, if somebody's different than us, we should make sure to emphasize the suffering that they have had rather than perhaps the shared humanity that we both encompass. And this is something that I really wanted to get to with you today. And I, I think this idea is is so powerful and, and so destructive. And the this sort of standpoint theory that we're dealing with here, this idea that you can never truly understand the experience of someone from a different identity group, you tackle that head on in the piece. You say, we were saying I couldn't understand my wife or kids. We were saying I couldn't understand my own life. So from, from a family perspective, it's very clear. I think it's also very clear from a journalistic perspective because you got into this business, as did I, to try to understand people from wildly different backgrounds. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to just profile other farmers from Iowa. That's literally why I did not choose to work at the Des Moines Register. <laughs> and this is what our whole training and outlook and, and is about, is about going in and trying to unpack all of that. And I think yeah. on a visceral level to journalists, this just feels so bizarre that, that that's not possible. Talk to me a little bit about how all of this applies to journalism. I think that it, I think that it has increasingly. I mean, you see, we saw this even frankly at ESPN. I don't want to signal out ESPN, though I think ESPN is perhaps indicative of a larger trend. We began to assign stories along the lines of does X athlete 
have some sort of gender or skin tone that is in, that is in line with Y writer. And it wasn't as if it was always samesy samesy, but if there could be some sort of shared experience, we were willing to do that. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't actually think that that is entirely wrong. Thinking only about it through journalistic lines, I think there's merit in the idea that sometimes certain people will open up, especially athletes who, by the way, especially black athletes who, by the way, have been historically chronicled and profiled and criticized by a whole bunch of white dudes. So I think there is a lot of merit to that idea that where possible, perhaps a better story could be had if we choose to perhaps get a writer with a somewhat similar background, right? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily wrong that that people from a shared experience should perhaps share a story together, right? Like the, the profile should be should be subject should be placed with somebody who is who does a good job of understanding that that circumstance. That said, I don't like the idea of thinking that only that sort of person could be capable of doing that. Now, I don't, I'm not actually arguing that ESPN did that. I just know that writ large, you tend to see this as a trend. You tend to, or rather hear about this in the scuttlebutt and gossip among writers and editors that, oh yeah, there's no way that that writer could actually do that piece. I, in fact, encountered, I'm not going to name names, but there were certain publishing houses with, so this, this essay is, is in some measure an outgrowth of the prologue and epilogue of the book on which the essay is based. And that book, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live long title. We can talk about it if you want, but if not, the thing I would say is there were certain publishing houses that in the midst of the pandemic and in the midst of the sort of reckoning, which by the way, I feel America needed to do after George Floyd died. But suddenly these same publishing houses were saying to me, I'm not so sure that we could go with you as the author of a book on a, on a series of civil rights leaders because you're white. And I'm like, okay, that really limits the imagination and empathy that you think anybody can have. And it also discredits the fact that I, I'm, I'm the father, I'm the head of a black household, right? So like, if you even wanted to abide by this absurd premise, I should still fit within your criteria. I should be sort of grandfathered in, but it's like, no, 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 no. Looking only at the basis of skin, you should be excluded. And it, it even goes beyond just you should be excluded it's as you say in the piece what gives you the right there's like that hostility to it as well and we saw that hostility play out a lot in 2020 i think you were still in the newsroom in 2020 correct yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we were yes so was i so was i and um and talking the way you and i are speaking right now was a dangerous thing to do yeah at that time yeah it was it was and it's this is where I lean on my relationship with Sonia. When I said a moment ago that that racial reckoning was needed, damn right it was, man. I mean, for far too long, Black people have been marginalized. They have been victimized. For far too long, they have been ignored. Sonia could, if Sonia were on this podcast with me, she could just cite example after example of times she was overlooked. It was never publicly stated because she was a black woman. Did that help her case that she was? No, it did not. All of that is true. And yet. 
the position that so many newsrooms took to counter that swung so wildly to the left that it's just like, whoa, where are we? Like, we aren't even in the zone of common sense anymore. And I remember writing in my newsletter about, um, do you remember this? Uh, the time that Tom Cotton, this then Senator Tom Cotton wrote that thing for the New York Times. Oh, yeah. Should I explain that or do you think your, your audience knows? I think, I think it would be useful to recap it. Okay. So the New York Times and its former opinion editor, James Bennett, a white guy, in the midst of the George Floyd protest, runs an op-ed from very conservative Senator Tom Cotton, who argues that the National Guard should be brought in to basically make sure that the levels of violence don't there's there there isn't any, really any violence in the streets now was there a sort of dog whistle of racism there probably there very well could have been however what th this is the sort of rhetorical genius of cotton's argument he cites what president kennedy had done um during his own administration to bring in either the the army or the national guard to quell then civil rights protests but so his argument is like Cotton's argument is instead like, you know, there's a lot of violence taking place in Portland. By the way, there was, right? By the way, there was in Minneapolis too. It's not completely without merit. Uh, did I personally find it all that compelling? No, because there's there's an equally compelling argument that you don't need to do that. And it's like, it's, it's, a, it's, you can, it was fairly obvious to my read that Cotton was trying to politicize an issue. Okay. But it should have just been like a thing that was like a part of the news cycle. Tom Cotton either say, oh, there's some points or he's full of shit and you move on. Instead, the New York Times, led uh, predominantly uh, by its black writers and editors, said, in essence, that they did not feel safe and that to publish Tom Cotton was, I mean, akin to, and this is where like the language that Barry Weiss and the free press always uses, like an act of violence, right? And I'm paraphrasing. I'd have to go back and look to see if, if the Times actually used that language, act of violence. That was, I would argue, though, the intent. So I end up writing in my own newsletter this essay against what was happening after running it by Sonia, running it by, frankly, a good friend of mine who's black at the Atlantic to see what she thinks. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. And here's the thing. There were a number of black writers and editors who subscribed to the newsletter, like, thank God that you said that. Because right now in this moment, and this circles back to like this sort of, what can you say? What can you not say? Thank God you said that because I want to say that, but I can't say that right now. Right. That was, it's, I just, boy, that's a dangerous position when, when journalists themselves feel that there's stuff they can't say. And in the midst of all of this, we also had these figures like Robin D'Angelo, white, wealthy people who were yeah. pushing a certain very extreme kind of politics. And you, you cover this in the essay. I just want to read a passage from the essay. D'Angelo and the new left would have us believe our most important work in life was to amplify our differences, that Sonia's beauty and depth could be, should be reduced to her skin tone and mine too, that we were all racial cogs now, that what counted forevermore was an insistence on our separate suffering and never the joy and promise of a shared future. The new left insisted that we see race first. The new left insisted that we see race only. What did Sonia and I see? An America regressing to some warped period in the 1950s, one where our kids started to tell us, I'm not sure where I belong. Talk to me a little bit about that. 
that passage of writing? Uh, it was tough because this is Sonia and I, again, raised with sort of classic liberal mores and just wondering what is going on with America right now? Um, and our kids beginning to wonder that same thing because they were, they would watch the same news clips that we did, right? They would partake in the same dinner conversations. And, and frankly, by that point, uh, our daughter, oh, let's see, that would have been around the time that our daughter was 12 and our boys were 10. So they're starting to form questions of identity themselves. Like literally who am I? Right. So they are the byproduct of, uh, of a white guy and a black woman. So, there's, al there's already a question of, well, where exactly do I belong? And now there is this further racial bifurcation of, you know, let's insist on these differences. And it's just like, well, wait, what does that even mean? Like, to what camp do I belong? And that was really the point. There was a lot going on on the right. I don't want to say that there wasn't. I mean, I write that book in large measure to say, here's all the shit. Like, there's parallels between what Trump and everybody else was pushing in modern day times, that's is so much akin to what Bull Connor and the rest were pushing in the 1960s. Frankly, the Kennedy brothers, for that matter, who weren't quite as good intentioned and liberal as one might imagine before the Birmingham campaign. And I wanted to capture that. But what King also talked about in that period was how he saw members of the then burgeoning Black Panther Party sitting in the same pews as members of the Ku Klux Klan. And he heard these arguments that you know, the white, the, the Klan men were like, we want an America that's fully ours and no one else can take part. And guess what? There were members, certain members, not all members, but certain members of the Black Panther Party who were kind of arguing the same thing. And for King in that period of time, he was like, that's not the path forward either. And so I write that book in large measure as a response to those conversations that we were having at dinner. And in particular, those questions that my kids were posing, just like, where do I belong? And I'm curious about the writing process of this book. I mean, how did working through You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, which the New York Times just selected as one of the notable books of the year and yeah. also um, was named one of Amazon's best books. Yeah. Of the year. yeah. How did that writing process help kind of crystallize your your thoughts and your feelings on all of this? It It actually reaffirmed for me and for Sonia that we're on the right path. What I can say today, however passionately I feel about what I wrote in the free press, and I do feel passionately about it, I also feel that America and really a lot of discussions throughout the Western world are moving away from that viewpoint. I am actually optimistic. I share the sort of optimism that those civil rights leaders held. And in fact, because of that optimism that they held at a time when they should not have had any, my own optimism has been buoyed because I'm like, man, their, their troubles... Their, their problems were so much more significant than mine, or Sonia's for that matter. America really has progressed. This is one of the problems that America has a hard time admitting to itself, right? Like, <laughs> I could not have married Sonia in Texas, where we met, if we would have met in 1963, or 1973 for that matter, or technically 1983, because Texas still had miscegenation laws on its books well after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, right? Now, did they enforce those? I don't know. But like, we actually heard that at the uh, when we went to register our marriage at the, at the courthouse. Like, oh yeah, like those laws may have been on the books until uh, I forget, like maybe the 1990s, right? So like, those laws persisted for a long time, but America has changed. America has improved. And 
Is there work to be done? Absolutely. George Floyd's death proves it. The way that my kids responded prove it. The way that the that the left has responded to those responses proves it. But also, like if we just continue to gripe and focus on our differences and our shortcomings, we we lose sight of the fact that holy shit, Sonny and I are married in a former Jim Crow state in our gay friends' backyards eight years before gay marriage was legal. The meal is catered by an illegal immigrant. Our parents meet each other and uh, for effectively the first time, and they'd never really talked with people like each other uh, until that point. Flash forward 20 years or thereabouts, uh, almost 20 years uh, from the time we were married. Of course, to to say that a black person and a white person, to, to how, how this podcast began, right? Like there's so many more interracial couples today. There's so many more interracial couples today than there were back in the day. Like Sonia and I used to, <laughs> Sonia and I used to joke, We'd see another interracial couple and we would like sort of, hey, look, there's an interracial. Like, oh my God, I mean, we should go talk with them, right? Because there weren't that many. The joke that we have in our house now is like, my God, you turn on any commercial. It's always like some black guy, some white woman, right? Some white guy, some black woman, right? Some Asian lady, some white guy, right? Like the, the, the couples on commercials are always interracial and nobody cares. I think that's fantastic. And I just wish that the left and particularly the the the, the far left, the progressive left, would acknowledge that, hey, things aren't perhaps the shithole that we think it is. And things have improved considerably. And I, I don't want to let you go before I spend a moment on writing, because I know you're very passionate about the writing craft. You have a newsletter on writing. And I, I wanted to just ask you in this moment, we, we were talking before we started recording about you know, that there is some bad writing out there in this moment with, with activism. And as I said, George Packer was on the podcast recently talking about that. Where do you look to right now in terms of the sort of, I don't want to say spiritual, but that is kind of the word I mean, the sustenance, the hope, the inspiration, what writers are, are giving you that in this moment? Uh, that's a great question. So I think it was Hemingway that said you should only read dead writers, uh, because if you read their works, their works have endured. I'm actually rereading Anna Karenina right now. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I love it. It's kind of gossipy too and fun. So you don't necessarily assume that of Tolstoy, but this is completely that. And I think the answer to that question is I, I'm trying to return to a lot of timeless books. I've been reading a lot of wisdom books, for lack of a better word. You know, I, I've, I've said in the podcast, uh, excuse me, I've said in the newsletter about how uh, Ryan Holiday is a friend of mine and uh, his daily stoic. I've read a ton of stoicism over the years. I've read a lot of the Bhagavad Gita this summer, just trying to understand that wisdom. I'm a deacon at my congregational church. There's aspects of the gospels. There's aspects of Paul's writing in particular that is absolutely beautiful. And I think very much applicable to today. So I try to draw my sustenance from that, though I would say, and we were saying this just before we recorded, that people like Packer are great. You know, Barry and her site. I don't know that I agree with everything, but I'm really glad that that Barry publishes the stuff that she does. I think that's fantastic. And this is you know, like maybe even the free press and this podcast is proof of like we're voicing it now, right? And like just by voice, you know this as well as I do, right? The old journalistic credo, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Speak it out loud. And then let's have a real debate about it. And let's not call each other names and make these ad hominem attacks and say, you can't say that. I'm going to censor you. But like, no, no, like, like this is all out here. Let's say what we need to say. And then eventually I still believe this because I think it's true. And it's been true for the however long there's been democracies. In the end, better ideas prevail. That's why we, you and I believe in the credos that we believe in, right? Because once you air it out, once you have 
freedom of the press, freedom of speech. Once you have these things, my God, what do they what do they lead to? You know, Thomas Jefferson said, if I could have a free country or a free press, I'd have a free press any single day of the week, because without a free press, there is no free country. I think that's absolutely true. So people like us just need to, I guess, continue on that mantle, keep carrying it. And again, I am more optimistic these days than I was even just a couple of years ago. Are you, do you feel optimistic or no? Oh, I feel very optimistic. Yeah. The state in Canada right now is not good at all, but I feel very optimistic. The stuff that the stuff that is being talked about on podcasts is, I think, really forcing open the Overton window. I think it's the independent press is putting a lot of pressure on the mainstream press and forcing them to grapple with some of this stuff. And I'm finding more and more of the mainstream coming around to these ideas. It's becoming less and less controversial to speak the way that we're speaking right now, which is just reasonable speech. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we aren't saying anything flamethrowing here. Though I support flamethrowing thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this essay really meant a lot to me. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk about it today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is also produced by me. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show at Apple Podcasts. <laughs>